Greetings, you are listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies, where we are discussing the 2010 film Inception. My guest is Adam Graham. Adam is behind the website nokingbutchrist.org, as well as the YouTube page No King But Christ. No King But Christ is an organization with the mission of better uniting the Christian worldview with libertarian principles. And so, Adam, before we start discussing the film you've chosen, can you tell us a little bit about No King But Christ and why you started it? Yeah, sure, Cody. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been looking into apologetics and, you know, the, uh, digging deeper into theology for, you know, more than a decade now and kind of the political um, realm for, uh, you know, close to that. Um, and I, done, you know, did a lot of research, a lot of learning, but it occurred to me a couple of years ago that really a lot of that just doesn't uh, doesn't serve much of a purpose unless I'm sharing that, you know, teaching uh, doing something to actually, you know, spread that knowledge as opposed to just consume it. So, um, you know, about a year ago, uh, or going on a year and a half or two uh, ago, uh, I started uh, blogging and and sharing just you know things I was learning. And I didn't really want to choose between politics or um, or religion, even though I don't, you know, I try to keep them within their proper uh, spheres. Um, so I figured I'd pick a, a name like No King But Christ and and try to integrate them both. So. Um, that's kind of what we what we do there. We focus on apologetics and political philosophy, um, kind of at that high level, and uh, and war and peace. Um, definitely, you know, the controversial, you know, the uh, the dinner topics, right? <laughs> All those things safe to talk about with relatives and uh, and uh, and uh, sensitive company. But um, yeah, it's kind of where we investigate that sort of thing, and uh, yeah, it's right right up our alley, I think. Yeah, and where does the title "No King But Christ" come from? Well, it's kind of a, um, I was really trying to rack my brain thinking of what in the world to call it because, you know, a lot of titles, good titles are taken and, um, and it was kind of a thing that at least we were saying at the time, um, it kind of was a, a saying in Christian and libertarian circles that, you know, I traffic in, uh, I, th- I think it has some, uh, history in, uh, you know, revolutionary war period or even like, um, a bit further back than that in, in, uh, uh, church history, but uh, you know, generally the idea is ultimately, you know, Christ is King of Kings, and when we're talking about libertarianism, we're talking about rulers, we're talking about authority, uh, we're talking about kingship. So it's kind of emphasizing that, uh, working at a couple different levels, maybe uh, emphasizing, you know, that kingship of Christ above all, and um, in just about everything. So uh, especially politics <laughs> at a pretty pretty big level too. So uh, you know, a little bit of that. What I, what I think I'd like to do real quick is is uh, talk about just kind of give a brief overview of the movie that that uh, you'd picked, and then I'd like to ask you why uh, why it was that you picked it, what made it interesting to you. So th- the movie, as I mentioned, is uh, 2010's Inception. It's directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, it's got a pretty pretty good cast actually. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Dom Cobb, which is not a very easy name to say it's kind of unpleasant it almost feels like i'm speaking klingon when i say it uh, yeah. dom dom cobb is a uh, professional thief who learns the secrets of his uh, marks by infiltrating their dreams uh, his partner arthur is played by joseph gordon levitt uh, ariadne which is a name from greek mythology uh, is an architecture student who creates the dream mazes that they use and uh, that's uh, ellen page plays ariadne uh, Aarons is somebody who uh, impersonates people inside the dream world, so he's part of the crew. He's played by Tom Hardy. And uh, Ken Watanabe plays Mr. Saito, who's a businessman, a Japanese businessman who employs Cobb for a mission. 
then there's, of course, Mal, who plays Cobb's deceased wife, who shows up in a lot of the dreamscapes. Uh, she's played by Marion Cotillard. Cotillard? Cotillard? Cotillard. Cotillard. Something okay. like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would have to be with with, the, with her accent. No, and no. then, of course, uh, Killian Murphy plays Robert Fisher, who is the Mark, uh, the guy they're going after, um, wh- whose dreams they're trying to infiltrate. So uh, the basic, just the real basic plot is that Cobb and his crew are hired by this Japanese businessman to implant an idea into the mind of his competitor. And the, the idea is that he should split up his massive corporation into smaller companies. And the job becomes increasingly difficult as the memory of Cobb's dead wife comes from his subconscious uh, and, and it sort of obstructs their mission and seeks to bring Cobb back into the dream world permanently. Uh, and there's a lot of they get into it. And of course, we'll have spoilers. We're not going to assume that someone hasn't seen the film. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of guilt that he has about his wife's death, which he blames himself for. So, a- Adam, why did you pick this movie to discuss when I when I uh, got a hold of you? Because I, I kind of almost expected you to pick a film that would relate somehow to political philosophy or something like that. So what was it about this that stuck out for you? <sighs> well, yeah, you know, when you... Um when you reached out and asked me kind of, you know, what films I might be interested in. Uh, normally if I was you know, thinking about my favorite films, it might, uh, I, I mentioned to you the fountain, you know, and, and, and uh, there were definitely a handful of other films that I would um, maybe, you know, enjoy discussing, but uh, I really tried to think of something that, uh, you know, a film that had made an impression on me that I felt like had a lot of different levels, a lot of different, uh, you know, points, of discussion, you know, points of, of relation that you could get into, especially in philosophy and, you know, theology. So I guess I kind of waited a little bit uh, more toward that. I mean, bear in mind, I, I you know, we certainly d- deal with uh, political topics on No King But Christ, but ultimately, you know, um, I like to weight, you know, theology and, and, and that end a little bit, you know, heavier in the, in the media realm. No one likes, uh, uh, you know, a blatantly you know political films we like good stories inception from when i saw it originally to now has really stuck around as just a good story and certainly one that's rife with a lot of different um uh, a lot of different intellectual you know levels that it can be addressed with I, i remember you know it's not every film you know it's not the regular marvel film that you might think about it a little bit on the way home you'll think about it whether you enjoyed it or not or you know a cool scene or a you know, interesting idea they they had, but um, films like Inception and a lot of the other films that I could say you know may have made an impression on me um, over the years, you know, they're ones that you really think about. Like, uh, uh, and and in believe me, if you go and Google, you know, Inception plot holes or synopsis or or discussion or anything, you will find <laughs> you know thread upon thread because it's just that deep and that involved and just really good writing and really good story. So I think you know definitely that. Uh, was a little bit of my mindset trying to find something that really was just rich with um, with things that we might be able to talk about, and it does definitely tie into, at least in my mind, some of the things that I had seen themes and and ideas in there. Definitely on a theological level, not just a philosophical level. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, I had to choose something, <laughs> and this sure. seemed like a pretty good one. So, well, there's also a lot of. Um, it seems to me that there's a lot here related to human psychology. Um, that, you know, as I thought about it and where I wanted to go with it, I thought, well, I'm moving so, some of the places I wanted to go are moving slightly out of philosophy, but but still, you know, relevant to the, these issues of the human condition and, and meaning and, and what it means to live a good life and what it means to be human. 
um, because we can talk about the philosophy aspects of it and and all that stuff. But to me, as I watch it, what's interesting about Nolan is that everything he does feels very organic, I guess. And even he's not afraid of using some of these sort of special effects and, you know, some of the crazy things you see where, where, you know, these dreamscapes are being folded and molded. And, but, but at the same time, um, you know, there's a certain groundedness and a, almost a grittiness to it, I guess. I know that he had, has made a big point of sticking with film instead of moving into digital territory and has even, you know, pleaded with other filmmakers to, <laughs> to continue using 35 and 70 millimeter to shoot films. Um, and as I watched it, it made me think of, there's a, 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 a German miniseries that was made by uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender called World on a Wire that ended up being uh, kind of ripped off by The Matrix and some other things later. But one of the things that sticked out stuck out to me as I watched World on a Wire is that it's all this sort of high-tech stuff with, um, you know, living in this virtual world and stuff like that. But very little of it feels like you're in... It's, it doesn't feel like Tron or anything like that. Most of it feels like just the real world even in the dreamscape and there are places in this where the dreamscape is, you know, definitely, you know, stands out from reality and, and, yeah. and doesn't, doesn't fit in, but there's yeah. also, I mean, there's also a lot of it that just does feel very organic and, and real. They don't go out of their way to make it seem, especially like um, the technology they use to connect people and, and go into the dreams. You know, they don't have like these kind of crazy apparatus or anything like that. It's just yeah. knock the guy out and hook him up to this, you know. It's kind of machine. you think of of contrasting it with, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's in a dream, so it has to be crazy colors or completely, you know, full of impossible sort of sorts of imagery, you know, things that could never exist outside of the dream. And certainly, when you uh, later on in the film see the sorts of things that um, Dom and uh, his wife at the time uh, had created, they certainly uh, do, you know, pertain to things that couldn't exist in the real world. But you're completely right. Part of, of course, the reason for them constructing those dreams is to put their subjects, you know, their kind of co-dreamers, in a, a situation where it feels familiar to them, um, and yet, uh, well, sometimes they don't even know they're in a dream, or that it's supposed to feel so uh, real that they can't quite separate it. And of course, in that sense there wouldn't be any reason to put these fantastical supernatural things you know in the dream and so you get very little of that a little bit with Ariadne's kind of you know crazy sandbox uh, creativity I mean they even make a point of it right if you if you if you differ too far from what the dreamer is expecting uh, their subconscious will attack it and understand that it's kind of being tampered with right because of course in our dream if, if we're thinking about our own dreams you know they are fantastical, but I don't know. I don't dream of of anything that looks like an LSD trip or you know a crazy um, you know rave sort of imagery or or real impossible things, right? It's usually pretty grounded. It's something from experience. It feels pretty real, but then there's an element of it that's not quite real. But I can't even put my finger on what's not real about it, right? So you're right. As you're watching the film, I feel like you understand that things aren't really real there. But um, the fact that it's played as though it's part of a dream, even the things that are CGI, I don't come away thinking about the film right now thinking, man, it was full of CGI. Even though I know it was, you know, effects and, and, and computer-generated things, I don't think of it, you know, reflecting on it as a film that's full of effects. I think of it as just a really rooted, 
um, uh, you know, film. Maybe you compare again, you know, the original Star Wars versus the uh, the 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 later prequels, you know, <laughs> where it's uh, pretty obvious, you know, which one is gritty and relatable and which one is kind of polished and stylized. And you can tell the difference, you know, or, or even a film like the matrix where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the two different worlds feel very different. Yeah. Um, whereas in this, that you don't, you don't get that so much, but so as I'm watching the movie, one thing that seems to come up, I think it's in the beginning and in the end, uh, this notion of, of ideas being like a virus or like a cancer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so, so the title comes from uh, this, this notion of placing an idea in someone's mind that you make them think is their own. So that, that's what inception is in this film. And, you know, one thing that's kind of weird to me is there's this discussion of whether that's possible. And it seems to me that it happens all the time <laughs> because in, in real life, like, our ideas are very rarely our own. Um, you know, um, they talk about Inception as this thing that, like, you know, is it even possible to do it? Um, but, I mean, most of the things that we believe or even the way that we create new beliefs or ideas or come to new ideas are just using these building blocks that we've already, that we've been given by other people. You know, our culture, our parents, our teachers or whatever, they shape the way we see the world, they shape our values, what we assume is good. And it seems like if people can give us ideas in this world and we know that they're giving us ideas and they're, and we're still, you know, imbibing them as if they're our own, um, wouldn't that be even more possible to do so in a dream? I, I remember uh, reading uh, that Ayn Rand had once said that nearly all of her ideas were her own, that they were original. And and if, if you know, someone like Ayn Rand can be so deceived in her waking life, why, why couldn't someone think that in a dream where you just assume that everyone you see is a projection of your own mind? Yeah, I, um, you know, I think maybe the the difference they were trying to to get across there is that you know we have um, a lot of beliefs that we take on, and you know, like you say, are kind of planted uh, along our way, teachers or influences or that sort of thing, and we and we take those things on, and they are ideas within our head. But I guess they were. I think part of the distinction they were trying to make is that when we think about, um, you know, the elements of our worldview and uh, try to trace back the origination of them, a lot of times we can think back to, you know, books we read or or influences in our life. And so there's kind of this chain of custody of that idea, whereas what it seemed, at least sometimes when they... When they um, uh, you know, spoke about it or or tried to describe it um, in the film was that they were trying to plant this idea to which you really can't trace the uh, origination of. And that seemed to make the difference for them, that if you could trace back where the idea came from, that would give you more of a reason to, you know, um, to uh, whatever the word, you know, to to discredit it. Or to somehow, you know, treat it less than if it, if you really believed it was original to you and you couldn't trace where it came from. Um, so I think, you know, there definitely is the case where ideas can be, uh, well, a vast majority of them are kind of, you know, um, coming from outside sources in. And even though we may be coming to these conclusions, we can kind of trace where they came from. So in a sense, that is maybe the difference they're trying to make there. But 
even when you look at what is happening in the dream to um, Killian Murphy's character, uh, Fisher there, in fact, that's kind of what they are doing, right? Um, in the first level, uh, Eames is impersonating uh, his uncle, uh, Fisher's uncle, right? And in this case, he is feeding him, um, you know, these ideas, talking about in, uh, talking about uh, his father's death or talking about, you know, what his intentions are, what his will is for him in the future. And then the next level down, um, you know, Dom is talking to him about it, playing off of that idea and trying to um, trying to plant others. And so there is very much a, a level where you're getting those influences. Those ideas are being planted in his head, but because it's put in this dream sense, if you can couch it in the fact that he's in the dream and the people are giving it uh, to him in the dream, normally in a closed system of a dream, those, uh, those inputs would all be coming subconsciously. So if you could still get that far down, have that sort of environment, and and come away with the idea that I don't remember anyone in real life telling me this, and yet I came to that conclusion, maybe that would make the difference for them. Um, but you're definitely correct. When you're thinking um, about the personification of, or the classification of an idea like a virus, I'm, I think, to kind of a story in my uh, history of kind of no king but Christ in my study of, of apologetics, you know, when a couple of years after I graduated from college and was in the working world, I was confronted with um, a few co-workers who would have, you know, philosophical or religious um, conversations at work. And they were very militant atheists. They were very committed. Um, and they raised questions to me that I couldn't answer. And by asking those questions to me and making me think through them, confront my own you know, thoughts about that, I realized that I didn't have good answers for them. And that idea in my mind that maybe what I had believed uh, was not so obvious to people, but had possible defeaters, um, really took hold. And I, for many months, I struggled with that. So in a very real sense, yeah, that idea got into my head. I knew where it came from, but it didn't matter. It still kind of grew in my mind to this thing that I couldn't ignore, this idea that would just haunt me for, for a long time, uh, like a virus, like a cancer. Um, so I mean, it's absolutely correct. <laughs> and even in the case of not inception, uh, or that you could trace back that idea, doesn't doesn't make it any different, really. That idea, no matter where it came from itself, it's very much uh, uh, has a life of its own. <laughs> so that was definitely a big theme that I think uh, just probably made the average person think a little bit more uh, about uh, the ideas they have in their head <laughs> from a day-to-day -day perspective, right? Sure. Well, and, and, and in the film... The, the idea that the reason that, that Cobb knows that Inception is possible is because he would go into this dream state with his wife. They created this whole big world there, and then she didn't want to leave. She began to think that it was the real world. And so he planted an idea in her mind, which was that this isn't the real world. And that in the way, of course, the, in, in the dream that you wake up is, is one of the ways to wake up is, is death. <laughs> so you kill yourself in the dream and you go out of the dream world. So he implants this idea in her head, this isn't the real world, you should kill yourself and go to, and get back to the real world. And then that grows so that when she go when she does go back to the real world, that still is in her head. Um and but it, it is interesting to think about the way um you know you can sort of drop a seed and it can grow into something else. And I mean I started thinking about different examples where where maybe you can see that, like um 
So, for example, this Judeo-Christian idea of the image of God and all people, you can sort of trace where that goes in Western civilization, and you can you can look at the fact that Western civilization, for all its flaws and all of its you know black spots and things like that, um, it was unique in a lot of ways from from other cultures in that it was. I believe the first civilization to uh, to abolish slavery. You have you know feminism and human rights growing and flourishing more in the West than you have in other places, and it seems to me that you can trace this back to this idea of the image of God in all people, and thus the value of all people, and then you sort of see how that grows, and then I think of other things too, like um, uh, you know resentment toward the rich uh, and how that becomes marxism and then that grows into all these other things um or uh you know the inherent badness of material things uh you sort of see like gnosticism you know or um or even just i mean the very idea of monotheism because with monotheism you have transcendence you have ultimate authority you have objective morality objective truth and so it becomes a very different way of of looking at the world once you start with this idea there's this cumulative effect as it rolls down the hill um so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but th- this whole idea of a small idea growing um, is is an interesting one that's in the film. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the tendency for that idea to have other ramifications, right? I mean, when I was confronting the idea that maybe <clears throat> uh, that maybe my ideas of creation or or morality or something were not uh, quite rooted the way that I had grown up thinking they were, and I, even though I couldn't defend it, you know, that naturally leads to other logical implications, right? Um, and that's definitely the case with, um, uh, with politics as well. When you're starting with some fundamental uh, principles, those principles naturally start to uh, lead out into other areas. And so if you get an idea um, that uh, runs counter to those things, then naturally it's going to have other um, you know, consequential uh, principles that that flow from it and lead you to those kind of downstream effects, like you mentioned, like uh, like communism, or you know, you think of uh, Darwinism in the 19th century and that leading into social Darwinism and all its sort of you know implications that that come from that um, through what you saw in the <laughs> Progressive Era and uh, and uh, you know the early. Uh, uh, Early uh, first half of the twentieth century, uh, you know, programs like eugenics and and even into some of the um, you know racism that 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 uh, persisted um, after the uh, yeah Reconstruction and everything. So um, yeah, I mean, it definitely it definitely plays just as much uh, as much of a role there uh, in politics as as well as philosophy. Yeah. Sure. Well, yeah, and, and evolution is one of the <clears> interesting <throat> things because it does get picked up by other disciplines that have nothing to do with science or biology at all. And mm-hmm. so if you start looking at um, a comparative religion or biblical studies, you'll start seeing things like, okay, well, we start with, you know, multiple gods and then we start kind of paring them down. And, and so you, <laughs> but in, in, there's this whole idea that we're moving uh, on a certain trajectory. Yeah, there's a tree of religion. Uh, almost like a tree of life, right? So the, if you started with many, you went down to one, and u- ultimately we're evolving toward none, <laughs> right? Sure. Is or, the is the implications they they bear out? Yeah. Or or, or even in like um you know the way like biblical studies like the Old Testament um is cut up into different parts based on 
where they think how they think uh, Israelite religion evolved, you know. So we'll stick this 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 verse goes here, this verse goes there. So we'll kind of cut <laughs> these books into all these different pieces uh, because we have sort of been influenced by this idea of evolution, and we're just going to apply it to everything. Yeah. Um, and kind of what you said too. Uh, the first thing you were talking about with thinking through things you may have been wrong about or, or whatever. I think the idea of doubt is kind of like that. So. Sometimes if you find that something that you have been led to believe is wrong, that inserts this idea of doubt. And so then you start to doubt everything. And so you see, um, you know, you, you hear a lot about deconstruction um, in faith. So you, you have people who will sort of go, well, I, I was wrong. My church was wrong about this or whatever. So uh, I'm just kind of taking things off bit by bit. And then sometimes you find that they've got nothing left by the time they're done with it. Once yeah, we've had a spout of that recently, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with Josh Harris and then a, a number of kind of high-profile uh, uh, people, yeah, um, sure. and throwing out the uh, throwing out the good with the bad, <laughs> throwing out the baby with the bathwater, right? Sure. Um, you know it, that um, definitely. See, I understand kind of the normal, um, kind of the, the face value interpretation of a lot of the themes in the in the film, but. Definitely, when I was looking, uh, you know, rewatching the film now, um, I made a point to look at it from Mao's perspective, if I could, um, with that doubt that she had, even from the beginning, right? So she, you know, it's a it's a really uh, kind of horrific scene in the uh, about two thirds of the way through the film, right, where Cobb is really explaining um, to Ariadne what happened. Uh, in limbo what happened with his wife and they're in this area they understand they have to get out the only way they're going to be able to get out um, you know when they need to is to die so they force themselves to lay on that train track both of them and wait and then of course this kind of iconic um, you know uh, mantra they have for themselves almost you know you're waiting for a train you know where it's supposed to take you but you can't know for sure right and so um you know, you've got that scene, and I started to really think through the sort of uh, the sort of imagery we have there, right? Where you know this this long black train shows up later in the in the in the dream world, right? This this imagery, uh, this kind of common cultural trope of a of a long train being you know sim- symbolic of death, so it kind of rears its head in these different cases, and then ultimately Mal becomes convinced in what. Dom thinks, at least, is the real world. So you're at the top level, right? <laughs> you're at the real world level, and there's nowhere else to go. But Mal is convinced there's another level up. I watched that film thinking, what if Mal was right? Because Dom can't know for sure. Um, and this is, is this whole mantra, right? You're waiting for this train. You don't actually know for sure. So I'm thinking through every time Mal comes in, sure, we're kind of led to believe or at least dom is explaining it that mal is continuously coming into the uh the the dream worlds that dom is in and trying to instill this doubt into dom as well to get him to stay there with her um or to go you know even one you know one more level out like she did um earlier i I started thinking what if mal was right what if mal is coming into dom's dream like uh he would do to other people and trying to get him to come, uh, you know, out one uh, one more level. And if we think, I started to apply the sort of dream 
sense, this this dream world and the real world sense, to our physical life and our later spiritual, you know, afterlife in a sense, right? So obviously, if if you're a Christian, if you're a theist, you believe that this life it's not a dream in the sense that our experiences, um, you know, the things we go through, uh, the works we do have an impact, but ultimately compared to um, presence and and uh, and that closeness and intimacy with Christ that we would have in the afterlife, uh, it, it 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 is almost you know almost on the level of a dream. You know, it's not uh, it, it it's it's only a shadow of the things to come, right? We see through that that glass uh, darkly. You know, it's it's clouded, it's obscured, and so I think about if you if you or I knew, okay, we needed to die, you know, to experience the real world because this wasn't the real world you know would we be able to lay down would we be able to be a martyr you know like the first century christians were would we be able to lay down on that train even though we knew that we would be waking up you know in the presence of christ uh that's hard to think through i mean so i kept thinking of you know bringing up that imagery um of this parallel to our life and what we believe is this higher level kind of represented in that dream world by the different levels of the dream, right? If we wake up, uh, there's a little bit of parallel there, you know, um, to the afterlife, physical uh, reality that we understand here, and the dream world that we have there. I, I started thinking of through maybe if Mal was right, you know, <laughs> tried to tried to find another level to the story. <laughs> Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> sure, sure it did, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting to think, right, because somebody who thinks that this life is it, it's sort of like the person who goes into the dream world and thinks that the dream world is it, right? <laughs> you know, it's 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 a it's only a, a shadow of of reality. It's it's um it's not the full substance of of every of the being, you know. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, she says that sort of thing the whole time, right? And of course, if you once you've seen it once, and then you come into it with a little bit of the, more of that perspective, I mean, you see different things like people showing up right when they need to to save Dom from trouble or something, right? In limbo, when he meets Mal later on, he says, "You know, you need to you need to snap out of this. I have to get back to the real world so we can be with our kids." And she says, "No, my kids are here." He says, "Our kids are up above." And so I'm thinking, you know, the the way we kind of think of of uh, that level of you know Christ or the spiritual realm being above, and she scoffs at him, you know, almost like this evil influence, and yet. You know, what if she's right? What if she knows where his kids actually are, and he doesn't really know? Um, but she draws attention to those sorts of things, being chased around by the you know shadowy organization, and for some reason you can't go back. You know, trying to put that doubt into Dom, and it's kind of up to the viewer to decide whether or not she's right and he needs to doubt that, or she's kind of plagued by this doubt that she can't quite let go. But ultimately, we believe Dom. It's kind of who who do you believe, you know, uh, more at the end of the film. And of course, it's lived with a little bit of cliffhanger at the end. It's kind of hard to tell whether who was right or not. But. Yeah, the, the, and I thought about that too, whether it was possible that she was really there and coming in as opposed to projection of his own mind. And I think the only reason why I feel like she isn't is because she's not asking him to go further up, but to go further down. And so that suggests more to me that, that it's a you know, kind of a projection of his psyche trying to bring him back into this world where he can have her, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that he's going into a dream world as opposed to, 
Well, I mean, so I don't unless unless you have to think that there's there's some kind of a reversal and that the real world is somehow the world that you go into as opposed to come out into, <laughs> you know, or go down into instead of come up out of, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, in the what what we're shown anyways is a memory of his of you know real real world experience. Um, he she tries to get him to go one level up with her initially, and then later on, you're right, you know, she says just to stay uh, down there with her. So. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, she does have the name of Mal, which, you know, from a Latin perspective is almost kind of telling you that she's bad, right? <laughs> it's this bad Latin root, so you shouldn't trust her, you know, and there's definitely elements of there that would that would lead you to that. But, I mean, if anything, it, it probably speaks to something of the depth or the complexity of the writing in the film involved, really, right? The fact that you could see both and you can see validity in both and you can take something from, learn something from both views, even if there is one, you know, right interpretation of the entire, uh, you know, <laughs> the sure. entire storyline, right? Yeah, and it seems like maybe the Mal who is trying to get him to commit suicide in the quote-unquote real world, I mean, she could be correct, but it seems that the Mal who's trying to bring him further in later would almost have to be a projection, I would think. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, you could you could maybe argue if he if in the hotel he was still a, in a dream world that that her at that point was a projection, and the one that's showing up later is actually her. I I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. I like I said, I'm sure there are Reddit threads full of this exact conversation, right? <laughs> Bringing yeah. up all the points. But um, regardless, I, I definitely was seeing, you know, with the train symbolism uh, and just the, the idea that that they could be in that world for, uh, you know, for decades. Right. And grow old together and then wake up and it have it been a couple hours, you know, in their real in their real sense. It really makes you think about, um, you know, the idea of, of God being outside of space and time in which, you know, for for him and that timelessness, our entire lifetime or the entire track of human history is like a, is blown out in this sense. But for for him or for those maybe in his presence, you know, seeing this or experiencing this, it seems like an eternity. But in fact, it was just a moment, you know. Um, so I I definitely just saw a lot of uh, um, you know part of why I, I thought it would be good to to talk about it, you know, in this in this sort of setting because I I think it definitely has. If nothing else, it made me think about spiritual things, you know, when yeah. I was watching it. Definitely, if you approach it like that, I think there's there's some, there's some depth there that can be gotten, right? What's interesting, too, to think about, um, you know, as you were talking about the how the dream can be years long, or the dream within a dream within a dream <laughs> can mm -hmm. be years long, um, is the interior of our psyche or, or our subconscious is... I mean, so much more capable than my actual conscious <laughs> experiences. Like, if you told me, you know, I, I would like you to sit down and uh, create some kind of, you know, draw out a landscape or what the interior of a building looks like, I would be hard-pressed. I have to think really, just, you know, to craft something. But you put me in that dream world, and my mind goes over time to create all of these scenes and all of these people and all of these scenarios that I couldn't imagine creating in my waking experience. And there is something they they sort of talk about that in the film how your 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 mind will just create those things, and um, I haven't thought a lot about that, but it does suggest that you know there's something uh, 
there's something more powerful about the human mind than 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 we're aware of. Um, you know, human creativity is is you know something to something to I don't know be be uh, be amazed at. Mm-hmm. There is a, a a kind of a brief scene where um, they sort of walk in on these people who um, basically live for the dream world. They they go they kind of do their day thing and then they go in this basement and hook each other hook them hook themselves up to each other and then go into this dream world that they see as their reality. It's become their reality. And, uh, you know, Cobb is, I think, sort of chastised, you know, by saying, well, you know, who are you to say otherwise, you know? And, you know, that that brings up this question about whether reality, or how much of reality is subjective and how much of reality is objective. Um, you know, so, and you see that with Mal, of course, she's convinced that the dream world that she creates is the real world that the real world is just a dream. And then, you know, uh, to kind of bring it back to Rene Descartes, his whole uh, uh, thought experiment, as he was trying to discern what we could actually know about, you know, reality altogether, was um, he came up with this thought experiment of the evil demon, um, who um, he had the uh, the utmost power and cunning uh, and used it to uh, employ all his energies in order to deceive me. So this evil demon... Is is giving Rene Descartes his entire perception of the world, <laughs> and so that everything that that Descartes is seeing perhaps is um, is an illusion that's being brought on by this this other being, you know. And Descartes' sort of struggle was, okay, well, it sounds sort of silly, but could I prove that that's not true? And he, the only thing he can really come up with at the end is, well, you know, I know that I exist because I'm thinking. But beyond that, <laughs> you know, what, what can I know? Um, and um, so on this question of the, sub- the subjectivity of, of reality, I had this, this thought. So if Cobb had stayed with his projection of Mal in the dream world, uh, even though, of course, he knows on some level that it's not really her, would he have been able to tell the difference? You know, people can surprise us, but on some level our knowledge of everyone that we know is, is kind of creates this projection, right? Um, so we have these experiences with them and based on that, we think we know them. We can sort of conjure them up in our head. We can imagine how they might react to certain things, what they might say, uh, how they might move. And, uh, so then I had this, this thought, if my wife was replaced right now with a construct based on my memories of her, how long would it take before I would notice? And, and and that sort of goes into this idea of how much of reality is just what we experience and how much of reality is what we project onto it. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth there to mind. Right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely you, you, when you, when you go through the scene, um, you know, in the, um, in the, uh, whatever you would call him, a toxicologist or the, uh, the chemist, right. The chemist's, uh, laboratory downstairs with all the, with all the kind of, uh, slaves there i mean there's definitely some cultural lessons to learn out of this film right in the sense that uh this sort of raw creativity i mean you you see it first when uh, when ariadne you know goes into the dream world she begins to create and then she says ah i'm done with this and then the next day she can't help herself but come back because she's already addicted she's already tasted what that kind of raw creative power is like and she can't live without it and so she comes back Obviously, the people in that basement uh, of the chemist feel much the same way. 
uh, whether or not they're creating there or they've just been there long enough that they uh, that they desire to be there more than the real world. Uh, there's some cultural um, lines to draw there, probably even deeper than could have been seen in 2010, right? Because, I mean, I think back in the day, if you think of Second Life or, you know, The Sims or some sort of um, kind of uh, that sort of analog, uh, you know, there is uh, that in the real world. But obviously we're moving toward, you know, AR and, and VR of the of the realm of, uh, you know, Ready Player One, if you're in the, like, a more modern, you know, references or Snow Crash or that sort of thing, um, when we're getting to the point where people would desire more to be part of, you know, social media groups than they would desire to be part of a, an actual community group with real people. Um, obviously, I don't hold to relativism in that sense where, you know, we can honestly say, well, it's their reality versus your reality and none of them is really objective in any sense. Um, but you're right. I mean, when we think about <clears throat> what sort of where do we draw the line between uh, between someone's experience and actual reality, right? Because uh, much like the historicists or you know uh, people in um, uh, you know that that string of of philosophy would would say, you know, we can't really understand um, reality without our experience, and we can't we can't see it outside of that you know at least not uh, as clearly as we would like we're limited in our in our ability to comprehend those things based on our experience you know um i think the big thing that the that the film also adds in though and that we can also kind of draw real world um correlations to is you know if you think of the totems that they have in the in the in the film right they're always told to have something that they take with them that it, you know they know better than anyone else little tchotchkes or you know things they can put in their pocket that kind of represent to them a a semblance of the objective and then everywhere they go they're able to test you know things based on that objective so when it comes to trying to kind of differentiate that that subjective reality that experiential reality and actual reality they have these totems i mean when i was watching the film i saw you know what? Uh, what is our totem in this kind of life that we have? Uh, but scripture, and so if you hold, uh, you know, epistemologically, that scripture represents this kind of view of objective uh, truth that we can always compare our experience to. Um, that is almost like our totem that we carry that we carry through that world. Now I will notice that Dom's totem is not his totem; <laughs> it is Mao's old totem, right? that little pawn that he has. So I I was always thinking that maybe in the film that was another key to understanding whether Dom was in the real world or not uh, was because he didn't actually know it as well. Mal could have, you know, played with that, uh, been playing with him. But, uh, and of course, that sort of thing comes up in our world too. How reliable uh, uh, is scripture? Uh, you know, how uh, inerrant is it? That sort of thing. So um I saw a lot of those cultural, you know, um, correlations there. If you think about, you know, antisocial tendencies or trends in, um, you know, in culture today of just uh, being able to kind of curate your own reality, really, in a sense, you know, your own ecosystem, your own uh, environment that you're in, um, not really having to deal with any other reality of your own, uh, you know, those people in the film obviously began to choose that, and I think you definitely see some people doing that, uh, doing that now as well. Um, it's definitely a challenge if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to teach objectivism or <laughs> trying to uh, 
to do apologetics or that sort of thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I like what you said about the totem that, and it sort of sounds, seems to me like it's almost like a tether, right? So sometimes we will find ourselves falling into some kind of subjectivity or relativism and that we need something to hold on to that tethers us back to reality. So we have this conception of, you know, this is the thing I want to hold on to. This is what's real. And so I need to be connected to that. And so, you know, it seems to me, like you said, it could be scripture, uh, something that we know about maybe God's character, for example, um, or, and I think about things like, uh, like anxiety or mental illness, where um, sometimes reality can be twisted because of this perspective, because of this, this trick that our mind plays on us. And that, you know, we're going to experience that and it's going to happen, but that it's helpful to have something to be tethered to that we know, okay, what I'm feeling right now is not reality. This thing here is reality, this thing that I'm, that I'm tethered to. And I, and I should not cut that tether because when I cut that tether, I, I've, I've left reality and I've moved into subjectivism. You're absolutely right. In the, um, who was that Descartes, um, in, in that example, uh, we're absolutely as as uh, human beings with a human nature. We are we are and and being you know physical beings um, limited by our nature and by our uh, faculties, right? So absolutely, our perception of reality is completely limited in many ways based on uh, what some people would call faith. Um, you know, we have faith that the uh, history past. You know, our memories of history were actually memories and not just planted on us a second ago, uh, fully formed, right? That's uh, definitely a, a, a philosophy exercise and, and epistemology and, and reality that you'll, that you'll see sometimes. How do we know that we weren't just all dreamt up a minute ago with all of our dream uh, memories intact, but in actuality, none of that past actually occurred? Um, or also the, the existence of other minds, right? Because the, one of the ways that we get past subjectivism is to check our experience with others. And that only works if other people actually exist. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a solipsistic, uh, if I'm if I'm using yeah. the right terminology there. But yeah, we have to trust that uh, those around us are not figments of our own imagination. Yeah. Which we can't actually prove. We can't prove. We can't yeah. prove. No, and uh, you know. So obviously, we look to uh, things that correspond to that belief, right? So that we can kind of uh, assume. We look for defeaters, you know, to that view, and try to defeat those defeaters if we can philosophically. Um, but you know, this applies not just to philosophy, not just to religion, even, but you know, to science itself. There are ways in which you know we trust that when we see something that's white, it's actually white, and it's not just our eyes working incorrectly uh, across the entire you know human uh, spectrum or something. I mean, there's plenty of ways in which we we take uh, these things, you know, on faith that they are operating correctly. And it's not to say they're unwarranted or unfounded. I mean, they're obviously everything we can tell uh, in many of those cases um, undergirds that that belief. Um, and they're definitely fundamentally basic. But that doesn't mean that they are equally as demonstrable <laughs> or objective or, or uh, testable as other observations we might have kind of down the line, right? Well, and I think for me, the question becomes if we can't, prove or can't know uh, whether or not we've been deceived by an evil demon or that we're in a dream or part of a computer simulation 
should we proceed as if everyone that exists is a is 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 a construct of our mind or is there to deceive us, or uh, even though we can't know it for sure, should we proceed as if our faculties are trustworthy and that reality is not illusory? Um, because ultimately, you can't prove it one way or another. One way or another. So, uh, upon what basis uh, should we proceed? What is the the idea that we should put our faith in? Well, yeah, well, it's not a thought experiment I've run in the in you know recent past, so uh, <laughs> so it's difficult to uh, to defend at a moment's notice. But yeah, I mean, obviously, if you were struggling with this uh, and you're a listener, you know, <laughs> I would probably say you run with one and see how see how well that works, right? I mean, there's something to be said, and I think you know people like Lewis have brought this up in the past, right? That um, if we have to assume something about reality that we can't actually live up to in our everyday life, then it's probably uh, probably reasonable to assume that that assumption that we're having is an incorrect assumption. So, for instance, if we say, well, you know, I believe that uh, morality is completely subjective in the world, so I'm going to live now as though, you know, nothing is actually right or wrong, and I'm going to proceed like that. But then the f- the first second someone cuts you in line or you know punches you in the face, you're going to inevitably respond in a sense that that was actually wrong for them to do that because we can't physically live out the conviction or the belief that you know morality is completely a subjective construct that has no objective grounding in reality. And so when we see ourselves butting up against um, you know these sorts of philosophical assumptions we might have um, and being unable to live consistently with that just as human beings it's a fair assumption um just at that level that we're probably um we probably have something messed up in our worldview <laughs> that that might not be a a, a warranted or a or a, a, a you know justified assumption that we have the thing that stuck out in the film to me one more thing is this notion of the reification or personification of guilt um, that and, and really, I mean, guilt or uh, regret can become a part of our subconscious. You know, these these memories of regret that we feel, they feel as real as when they happen. So, like, uh, you know, Mal Cobb's dead wife, she feels more like a real character in the film and less like a projection, even though supposedly she is. And, I mean, it makes me think about things that I've done that I've regretted, whether it was immoral or just embarrassing or whatever. But then I create this projection of the person that I've embarrassed myself in front of or, you know, wronged or something. And and they're always there in my head to disapprove, to mock me, or to just be eternally hurt and, and unable to, to move past it. And they become like this, you know, like, like Jacob Marley's ghost where they're just sort of chained <laughs> to this, this mm-hmm. thing that I've done. And, uh, and that's, you know, probably not at all the case. Uh, but it's something that my brain does. Um, and, you know, really, I guess, I, I, you know, when we do that, we're the ones who are become like Jacob Marley's ghost. We become unable to live and move and, and act uh, as free agents because we're, we're chained to this thing that we've done. Uh, but, and, and I like the way the film expresses that. I, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts to add to that, but it was just something that really stuck out for me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a theme throughout if, if, you know, literary history, right? <laughs> if it's Poe's Telltale Heart, you know, that just always hounds him, uh, you know, these constant reminders, you know, um, it's definitely uh, well done 
you know, in the film. Uh, and it doesn't really come out until later on, obviously, um, in the film that it's actually kind of there because of guilt. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a, um, a point. Now, I, I don't know how I, I don't struggle with that as much as different with different personality types, right? I mean, um, there are those, I think, that struggle with that more um, and those that struggle with it less. I mean, obviously, if I had a hand in my wife's demise, I, I'm sure I would probably feel quite quite guilty of that. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's probably enough to make you uh, thankful for grace and, <laughs> and forgiveness <laughs> through Christ, right? I mean, it's tough uh, to imagine having to carry that sort of burden without uh, knowing, uh, you know, that that you had forgiveness from anyone at any level. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big theme in there as well. Sure. So, um, do you have anything to add before we, before we start wrapping up uh, other things that you noticed in the film that we didn't really discuss or. Well, I think we hit on a lot. I mean, this film is coming up on almost 20 years old now, right? If it's released in, in 2010 and, uh, or 10 years old. 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, I know my life has changed quite a bit in, in 10 years when I would have seen this uh, around that time. I forget if I saw it in the theater or just shortly after. Um, you know, I hadn't been married yet, uh, hadn't had children yet. Um, and as I watched the film again, especially with that kind of uh, critical eye, you know, just really trying to understand what was being said and really feel, you know, what the story was having to say. Um, it's been said in other uh, arenas, but I'll, I'll reemphasize it here. There is just a level in probably every art form, right? But especially in film and and uh, the visual medium and, and and storytelling, that there is just a level of storytelling and empathy that you really cannot grasp um, outside of being a parent or outside of being married. You know, when you see Dom go through watching his wife, you know, step off a ledge. Um, and having to live with that or having the knowledge that your children are in a, you know, the next country over, but you can't see them. You know, I don't remember being hit that hard in the chest with those things uh, then as I absolutely am now. So, um, so I was just really taking, I mean, it's a hard film to watch. I think if you're a parent or if you're, um, you know, if you're a husband or a wife, it's really uh, it's a reason why it's a very impactful film, but it's definitely not one that I tend to you know watch on repeat uh, a whole lot. It's it's not not quite as much of an enjoyable film even now um, as it was before. Uh, still has just as much to teach, but just hits so much harder from an uh, an empathy you know an empathic level. Um, so you know that was definitely something that that stuck out to me. But um, no, I mean it was definitely interesting to get uh, back into. Um, you know, into this and start thinking through it again and uh, gave me a new appreciation and got my mind sparked a little bit. So, yeah, it was a fun, I guess, fun ride. It's an okay way to do it. It's certainly an interesting one, yeah. Sure, yeah. I, I find these, these conversations are beneficial because knowing that I'm going to have to come here and talk about something for an hour, I, I look at movies a little bit more closely <laughs> uh, than I might normally. And so you start to really think about the connections here and, uh, you know, I I only mentioned one philosopher, but uh, <laughs> it was, I was gonna say, it's a philosophy podcast. So I'm gonna have to have to mention some philosophers here. Oh, probably. Well, I could I could have mentioned more, but I didn't want to get sure. too super technical. Sure. About yeah, it. I know. Yeah, I could have mentioned. Yeah, Kant, we, uh, listen, Hume, we've got so yeah. many. We have so many names we could have dropped, and we were just being <laughs> easy on everyone. All right. Yeah, make make it, make it easy for people to follow. Um, 
But uh, yeah, but it was really great to have you here. And before I go, though, I do want you to kind of remind people about what No King But Christ is and where they can find out more about it. Uh, sure. So the main blog is at nokingbutchrist.org. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter. If you search for them, we have a, I think is a kind of a neat um, Instagram uh, account as well uh, under No King But Christ. We've got nice little uh, shareable memes on different not not the not the meme culture type memes. I'm, I I don't go in for a lot of those, um, but uh, but you know quote memes and things that I think are really uh, uh, you know it's in the respectable. Uh, you, you you won't feel bad about sharing them. Uh, I'll say even if they uh, are provocative, um, and then of course the YouTube channel at um, at No King But Christ as well should be pretty easy to find. Um, a lot of the uh, articles that we've done in the past in uh, video form. So if you like um, you know consuming that, being able to see some imagery and and that sort of thing um, along with your uh, lesson, uh, you got that as well. Uh, really you know nice to share. Uh, with people as well, but um, everything No King But Christ, yeah, it should be pretty easy to find. And uh, Yeah, so the website is nokingbutchrist.org. The YouTube mm-hmm. channel is youtube.com slash nokingbutchrist. And then the Instagram is nokingbutchristblog. And yes, the memes are very respectable. I also have memes. They're not as respectable. Not nearly <laughs> as respectable. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, and it's uh, very, shareable, uh, very shareable content. Um, so yeah, man, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you taking time to, uh, to, to do this with me, to watch the film, to, to, you know, take some time to think through and, and take some notes and, and just to be here. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Adam.